heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And this is the reading of God's good and perfect word. All God's people say, Amen. Amen. Please bow with me in prayer once more. Heavenly Father, you are the God who is first. You are the God who is chief above all things. Uh, You are the God uh, who is the one true God, far above all other so-called gods. And we know that all things come from you that you are the unmoved mover, that there is nothing exists apart from you. And Lord, we thank you that from you comes wisdom, and from you comes love, for we know that we do not love you first, but we love because you first loved us. From you comes life, life abundance. From you comes salvation. You are the author and finisher of salvation. From you comes every good and perfect gift. Lord, you are so merciful, so gracious, uh, so patient, forgiving, long-suffering and steadfast. And how we praise you for this truth. For Lord, we know uh, that with the great sinfulness of our hearts, our sinful attitudes, our sinful words, our sinful actions, that we deserve to be snuffed out a long time ago. We have all sinned greatly against you. But Lord, if not for your mercy, uh, not one of us would be standing here now. Not one of us would be here praising your name. So Lord, we praise you for your mercy and for your love and your patience. And Lord, we thank you for your word, this great gift to us, so we don't have to wonder about who you are or what you're like. But Lord, we can go straight to the source, your great gift to us, this perfect, without error, uh, complete, sufficient gift uh, that gives us all that we need for life and godliness, all that we need to know to walk in a way that's pleasing to you, all that we need to know uh, to to know how how to honor you and glorify you. And so we thank you for this. And Lord, as we look to your word this morning, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would illuminate our hearts and minds, you'd open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And Lord, we thank you that you will do that for your name's sake, for the good of your good of your name and the good of your people. And Lord, we do think of those in our midst uh, who are going through uh, various hardships and trials and difficulties. Uh, we, we pray that they would be looking to you, that their minds would be stayed upon you. In particular, Laura, we lift up uh, Carla Hansen and, and her family uh, with the recent loss of her brother. Uh, we pray for uh, her brother's wife, who's still surviving, and children, uh, that they would look to you during this time, that they would find their hope and their peace as they have minds that are stayed upon you. And Lord, we, we think of Christy Moore's sister-in-law, Lisa, who recently had the surgery and is in need of healing. Lord, we pray for 
uh, a miracle there, Lord, for healing of the cancer, and that you would just strengthen her. And Lord, we also just think of the brainstorming initiatives that we have as a church, as, as our, our growth groups meet, and think about ways that we can have acts of mercy within our community, that you would guide those efforts. Lord, we, we want to make a difference that can't be ignored for your namesake. We want to saturate Barry and Allegan County with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want every nook and cranny uh, to be filled with your gospel, filled with your glory, filled with your truth. And Lord, we've, we've put together these, these thoughts and ideas. Lord, we, we need you to guide and direct. We pray that you would and that we would hear your voice and follow your lead and that you would be magnified through it. And Lord, we think of Orangeville Day coming up. Uh, and just the opportunity to have the booth there, Lord. We pray that uh, many would come to the booth. We'd have great conversations, that we'd have a salt and light influence there for your namesake. And, and Lord, I pray for each one of us throughout the week uh, that we would not be given over to complaining or bitterness or anger, uh, but that, Lord, we would be radical and that we would be thankful and joyful and generous uh, because our minds, again, are fixed upon you, because you, God, have been merciful to us. You have met our every need and then some. And we praise you for it. And again, Lord, we just ask as we look to your word that you would guide and direct and do a mighty work in our hearts. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in his, in his famous work uh, called The Institutes, uh, John Calvin writes this. It's the opening line. He says, Nearly all the wisdom we possess... That is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. So true wisdom comes from the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And those two things are, are very much interrelated. So think about it with me for a second. When, when you and I do an honest evaluation of our hearts and lives... When we truly uh, take the time to take stock and to know ourselves, let, let's be honest, when we look deep within, it's not pretty, right? If we're honest. We begin to see our weaknesses, our shortcomings, our failings. Quite honestly, what the Bible says, we see our depravity. And, and the result of such honest self-evaluation should compel us to know God. It should compel us to search after God. That's, that's what Calvin means when he says, true knowledge comes from the knowledge of ourselves. And so he says this, each of us must then be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain at least some knowledge of God. That's quite the phrase. He's saying as you look, look at yourself and evaluate yourself, you should be stung shocked by your own unhappiness and that should compel you to seek after God. But the flip side is also true. Just as without the knowledge of self there is uh, very little knowledge of God, without knowledge of God there is no knowledge of self and that's because sin deceives. And the very first person that sin deceives is yourself. And so uh, we are prone to think more highly of ourselves than we should. We, we convince ourselves that we're basically good. But when we look at God, 
as he's revealed himself uh, in the scriptures, and we see he is perfectly holy, and that he's the only true standard by which any judgment must be measured, we are confronted once again with our shortcoming, with our depravity. We see just how far we fall short. We begin to see ourselves as we truly are. And so again, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self is the path to true wisdom, and they are very much interrelated. A.W. Tozer, if you're familiar with him, says something very similar. He says it differently, but it's, it's the same idea. He says, the most important thing about anyone is what you think about God. But that's the most important thing about you, is what you think about God. The most important thing about you is not how much you know, or who you know, or how much money you have, or, or the color of your skin, or what political party you're with. But the most important thing about you is what you think about God. Neither are your emotions or your feelings the most important thing about you. And I think that's important to say because we live in a day and age where emotional experience is emphasized over everything. This is true on Sunday mornings. Often we evaluate the sermon or the music by how it makes us feel. Sometimes we do our devotions that way too. We say we had good devotions if we felt closer to God. And please hear me, feelings are a wonderful gift from God. A wonderful gift from God. We ought to be moved by God's Word. There's something wrong if you're not moved by the preaching and the singing of God's Word. We should be moved by it. It should touch our hearts. When the truth touches our hearts, it should uh, compel us to worship wholeheartedly. But the most important thing about you is not how you feel. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. I say that because what you think about God determines everything about you. If you get God wrong, you get everything else wrong. Your knowledge of God is the core shaping influence of your life. Whatever you think about God will determine the course and the shape of your life. It will determine how you use your time, how you spend your days, how you spend your money, how you live your life. That's why Jesus says we are to love him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And this is why Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 9, 23 and 24 says we should boast about one thing. What? That we understand and know God. That's what we should boast about. That's the most important thing of all, understanding and knowing God. The sum and substance, the highest pursuit, why you were created in God's image is to know Him. To know Him as He's revealed Himself in the Scriptures. And as you grow in knowledge of Him, your mind is renewed, uh, your faith is strengthened, you better understand His plan and His purposes. It gives you a firm foundation to withstand the storms of life. As you get to know God through His Word, it helps you deal with those doubts that come. It helps you increasingly make wise decisions. Now why am I saying all of this? I'm saying all this because as, as I uh, sat down to, to study through this text and think through this text, my heart was captured by the phrase uh, that's found in verse 58, where it says, The Lord had shown great mercy to her. The Lord had shown great mercy to her. My heart was captured by that phrase because if I'm being honest, I don't think very much about God's mercy. It doesn't factor into a lot of my thinking. I don't magnify it much in my life. 
I know that God is merciful, just like everyone in this room knows that God is merciful, but, and that it's important, but I, I don't spend a lot of time meditating on it, and that's a problem. That's a problem. And I knew it immediately. The Lord convicted me in my heart, so I confessed that to the Lord. And spent quite a few hours this week just trying to dig as deep as I know how to dig into God's Word about His mercy. And it was very, very refreshing. And quite honestly, it put a fire in my bones. And I'm excited to magnify His mercy this morning. Because mercy is a major theme in our text and actually in the whole chapter of Luke 1. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 50. In Mary's song, which Josiah preached from last week, where Mary says this in her song, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Then verse 54, the same chapter, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. Then of course, verse 58, which we read where it says, The Lord has shown great mercy to her. And then in verse 72, in Zechariah, in his prophecy, it says, to show the mercy God promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And then drop down to verse 78, where he says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And consider this, Elizabeth gives birth to John. And guess what John means? God is merciful. And so uh, God, in his mercy, has Elizabeth give birth to John, which means God is merciful. And as one whose name means God is merciful, he's going to point all day long to the source of mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ. The emphasis is mercy. Mercy. So what is mercy? And what impact should it have on our life? That's, that's what we're looking at this morning, the many sides of mercy and how we should respond to that uh, mercy. So what is mercy? Well, the most, that's, I think that's the most obvious place to start. Uh, and it's not as easy to define as you might think it is. Uh, often some biblical concepts are hard to get our minds around and to define. And part of the reason why with mercy is because the Bible uses a lot of different words uh, to talk about mercy. It's not just one word that you can kind of trace through the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are multiple Hebrew and Greek words employed, so it's many-sided. And so consequently, when you read through Scripture, you're reading about mercy, and you might not even realize it. Because there's so many different words and, and synonyms, that are, synonyms that are used for it. Synonyms such as kindness, loving-kindness. Almost always when you come across the phrase loving-kindness in the Old Testament, it's from the Hebrew word chesed, which is mercy his loving kindness, goodness, favor, pity, compassion, steadfast love. It's so multifaceted that it takes seven synonyms to capture it. It's quite the word. So how do we, how do we take all of that and, and get our minds around that? And there's a lot of ways in which we can't, because his mercy... Uh, is, is so profound and amazing. But the best that I can do, uh, and, I, and I hesitate to do this to some degree because I, sometimes I feel like with definitions we, we, we box God in. And I don't want to do that. But here's what I want to offer up to you as mercy. Mercy means God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. Mercy is His tender-hearted, loving compassion toward people who are in need. But it's not just this deep feeling that that feeling compels him to act. 
So it's his tender-hearted, loving compassion toward people in need that results in him taking action. You can see then it's similar to grace, yes? Because grace is meeting people, uh, helping people who don't deserve it. And mercy is, is, is in many ways the same. But there is a significant difference. Grace is given to those who are miserable and desperately in need of help, but grace may also be given to those who don't need it. Mercy is specifically always only given to those who desperately need it. So if I can give an example of, of it this way. Suppose I give a thousand dollars to someone who is very wealthy. The person doesn't need it and doesn't even necessarily deserve it. But I give them that thousand dollars anyways. What is that? That's grace. So what's mercy? Mercy would be, I have that thousand dollars and I go to the inner city. And I go to those who are helpless and homeless and without food, um, maybe without water, without sustenance. And I give them that thousand dollars. That's mercy. That's mercy. Or consider the example of Elizabeth. If Elizabeth already had a child, and God gave Elizabeth another child, what's that? That's grace. But Elizabeth doesn't have a child. And Elizabeth has been praying for a really, really long time for a child. It's been a great disgrace to her. Those are her own words back in earlier on Luke chapter 1. It's a stigma, a social stigma for her. And so she has a need, a child. And God gives her that child. That's mercy. And it's great mercy, like it's called in that verse, because how old is Elizabeth? <laughs> we don't know exactly how old. Maybe that was a trick question. Uh, but she's, she's past childbearing years, well past childbearing years. So it's great mercy because of her great need uh, that God gives to her. Great mercy. So, mercy is God's compassion for those who are hurting and wounded. But, just because we've defined it that way doesn't mean we're even beginning to scratch the surface and, and understand all that's going on there. Think about this. Mercy is one of the most essential qualities of God. I'm just going to read a few verses. Exodus 34, verse 6 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 31 says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. Psalm 111 and verse 4 says, He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Psalm 116 verse 5 says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. And then look at Luke chapter 1 verse 78, which we read just a few moments ago. We're kind of towards the end of Zechariah's prophecy. And, and it says, Zechariah says, Because of the tender mercy of of our God. Now the word there, tender, quite literally means bowels. Because of the bowels of God's mercy. Uh, we would translate it heart. Because of the heart of his mercy. His deep-seated personal feeling. His compassionate 
heart. What is that verse saying? The verse is saying, along with all the other verses that I read, that not only is God merciful, He is mercy itself. It is His divine essence. Mercy lies at the heart of God, and therefore it should be no surprise when we read in, in Micah chapter 7, verse 18, that God does not stay angry forever, but delights to show mercy. Praise God for that verse and that truth. Is God wrathful? Yes, and rightly so, for we sin against Him daily, but He is more inclined to mercy than wrath. Micah 7.18 says, God does not stay angry forever, but delights to show mercy. That is a wonderful truth that I praise Him for, because if that wasn't true, I would not be standing here right now. And none of you would be here this morning. Why would I say that? Because of our sin. If God was more inclined to wrath than mercy, then He would have wiped us out a long time ago. With the flood, He wouldn't have bothered rescuing Noah and his family. There'd be none of us here. Praise the Lord <laughs> that He is more merciful, that He delights to show mercy. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, that God is the Father of mercies. What does that possibly mean, that He's the Father of, of mercies, than, than to say that He is the source of mercy? Mercy comes from Him. He is its author. He is our true help and comfort. There is no help. There is no comfort outside of God Himself. So I'm trying to help us see through this is that mercy is not incidental or peripheral to God. He doesn't show up by accident or by weakness. It is intrinsic to his very nature. He is characterized by mercy. What is God like? He is merciful. He delights in mercy. He is tender in his mercy. His mercy is also immeasurable. It is immeasurable. We don't have to worry about it running out. We don't have to worry about it like we did with, what was that? That was, that was toilet paper, right? That, that a few months back, like no one could find anywhere, except for Bill Boyle. <laughs> Thank the Lord for Bill Boyle, huh? <laughs> Mercy is not on short supply. Psalm 103, verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. Remember, that's a synonym for mercy. So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 say, His mercies never come to an end, and his mercies are new every morning. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 50, Mary praises God, saying, His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. What does from generation to generation mean? That means it doesn't end. Generation to generation to generation to generation. From Adam to Seth to Abraham uh, to Moses to Joshua, to David, to the prophets, to Israel, to you and I who believe, it never ends. It's this unending stream of mercy from generation to generation. Hear the words of Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, where God says to Israel, You shall not bow down to them or worship them, speaking of false gods, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So catch that. He punishes to the third and fourth generation, to those who hate him. That's an important qualifier. 
but he shows mercy to how many generations? A thousand generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. What's that saying? His mercy is immeasurable. And what a contrast that is. God restricts his judgment to three or four generations of those who hate him, but pours out his mercy on a thousand generations of those who love him. God's mercy is immeasurable. It's immeasurable. His mercy endures forever. Read Psalm 136. 26 times it repeats that phrase, His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. Over and over and over in Psalm 136. Listen, the sun would sooner exhaust all of its light and the oceans would sooner be drained dry than God run out of His mercy. It's immeasurable. It's without limit. It is also faithful. It is reliable. His mercy is sure and steadfast. Luke chapter 1, verse 54 and 55. Again, Mary's song. Uh, She cries out that God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. By referencing Abraham, she's making a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, the Bible is very much structured by covenants. If you want to understand the Bible, you need to understand covenants. You need to do a study on covenants. And one of the very first covenants is the covenant with Abraham. And God covenants with Abraham out of his mercy and grace uh, to say that from him, all the families of the earth will be blessed through his seed. And we know that seed to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Mary understands as she sings that song that growing within her womb is, the, is part of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And she praises God for his mercy that he remembers, that he is faithful, that it's steadfast. God made that promise many, many, many years before. And he's reliable, he's steadfast. He, he keeps what he says. Mary praises him for that. The same with Elizabeth. Elizabeth uh, and her neighbors pray, and, Ze- and Zechariah praise God for his mercy, for he had told Zechariah just nine months earlier uh, that Elizabeth will give birth to a son, and that that son will cause great joy. And then we read in these verses that that comes to pass. God's mercy is steadfast. In fact, just earlier I mentioned the Hebrew word kased, that means steadfast love. That word is found 245 times in the Old Testament. Do you think God's trying to tell us something? He's faithful. His mercy is faithful. God forges and maintains relationships with people who do not deserve it and give him every reason in the book to walk away, but he doesn't. In fact, if you can, very quickly turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9, because Nehemiah chapter 9 brings out this idea of God's faithful mercy in a, in a very, very powerful way. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9 Keep your finger in Luke, because we'll turn back there if you have a bookmark or something. But in Nehemiah chapter 9, we see God's covenant unbreakable love uh, towards his people. And we're going to pick it up in verse 17. Really, you could read the whole chapter in Nehemiah, but just for the sake of time, we're going to pick it up halfway through. So Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, speaking about Israel, says, They refused to obey 
In spite of all the amazing things God had done, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. What a thing. God had miraculously, mightily rescued them from Egypt and they stiffened their neck and they try and find someone to go back to slavery in Egypt. But watch what it says. Verse 17, Nehemiah 9, verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God. He brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day nor the pillar of fire by night to light them for them by which the way they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. That's amazing. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, those, those Canaanites, and gave them into, the hand, into their hand with their kings and the people of the lands, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and, and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. What, what incredible goodness. But then verse 26, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to what? Your great mercies. You gave them saviors, the judges, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck, and many would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies... You did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. His mercy is limitless, and his mercy is faithful in spite of our great sinfulness and rebellion and unworthiness. That's God's mercy. That's me trying to condense quite a few hours of study into a few words about mercy. It's pretty spectacular, huh? Amen. Now what should our response be? How do we respond to God's multifaceted mercy? And I hope at this point you would say that the mercy of God is one of the most precious truths in the world. And I hope that you would say that I have a lot to learn from God's mercy, because I know I have a lot to learn from God's mercy. And I see in our text, verses 57 through 66, just a number of ways that are good and proper 
to respond to mercy. And the first one is this. The first response to praise and mercy should be praise and rejoicing. It should fill our hearts with joy. Look at verse 58 again. Well, 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son. So God keeps his word. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. So rejoicing. Now, there's nothing really too surprising about that. That's usually what happens when someone gives birth to a baby. People are happy, right? <laughs> uh, but notice the text doesn't put emphasis on the fact that they're happy so much about the baby being born. The text says her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy. And they rejoice. They rejoice at his great mercy. His mercy. They see as the Lord's doing, and it gives them joy. God has mercifully met her need in a surprising way, and the people rejoice. It's the same with Zechariah, right? If you look at verse 64, his tongue is finally set free. What does he do? We're going to talk more about this next week, but what does he do? He bursts forth in praise, blessing God and praising God for his mercy. And doesn't God's mercy put a fire in your heart and cause you to want to praise Him and worship Him as, as you think about it, as He meets your needs? It did for Zechariah, it did for Mary. And just, just, just think of it this way. You, you cannot have a blazing fire without wood. Right? That makes sense? If you're going to have a, a blazing fire, a big bonfire, and all you do is have a bunch of crumpled up newspaper... How long is that fire going to last? It's going to go up pretty quick, right? What do you need to sustain a strong, roaring fire? You need wood, right? I offer up that illustration to say this. If you're going to have a worship of God, a praise of God, joy in God, passionate praise and joy and worship, what you need to know is God. The truth about God is the wood that keeps the fire and the passion burning for him. If you want to live a life to the glory and praise of God, a passionate life for him, what you need to know is the truth about God. And get to know him more and more and more, and that fire will grow more and more and more. Uh, Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, Take the attributes of God one by one and think about them. I do not know a single attribute of God which is not wonderfully quickening and powerful to a true Christian. As you think of any one of them, it will ravish you and carry you quite away. You will be lost in wonder, love, and praise as you consider it. You will be astonished and amazed as you plunge into its wonderful depths, and everything else will vanish from your vision." And I can tell you that's exactly what happened to me this week. As the Lord renewed my heart and refreshed my heart about the wonders of His mercy. And you can do that with every one of His characteristics, every one of His attributes. In, in your bulletin, there's a sermon uh, notes page, and, and on that notes, I inserted the, the lyrics for an old hymn written in 1776 called, Thy Mercy, My God. Unlike Josiah, I am not going to sing that. Uh, but I will, I will read that for us. And please follow along with that. 
in, in your bulletin, those, those notes that are in there. Because I want you to see how the mercy of God caused John Stocker, the one who wrote the hymn, uh, to, to write these words and just rejoice in him. So they're, they're powerful words. He says, maybe you know the song, and you can hear the tune in your head as I say it. Um, Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart, and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone, from the first to the last, hath won my affections and bound my soul fast. Without thy free mercy, I could not live here. Right? We've been talking about that. Without thy free, free mercy, I could not live here. Sin soon would reduce me to utter despair. But through thy free goodness, my spirits revive. And he that first made me still keeps me alive. Thy mercy surpasses the sin of my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardness departs. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep to the praise of the mercy I found. The door of thy mercy stands open all day to the needy and poor who knock by the way. No sinner shall ever be empty, sent back, who comes seeking mercy for Jesus' dear sake. Thy mercy in Jesus exempts me from hell. Its glories I'll sing and its wonders I'll tell. T'was Jesus the friend when he hung on the tree that opened the channel of mercy for me. Great Father of mercies, thy goodness I own. And covenant love, remember he's faithful? Covenant love of thy crucified Son. All praise to the Spirit whose action divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness mine. His mercy should cause us to praise him like that. The second thing it should do is fill us with awe and wonder. We see that in these verses, awe and wonder. Uh, and, and actually, verses 59 through 63 would actually, are actually, they're kind of comical <laughs> uh, as, as you read through them. Uh, kind of funny. Uh, John is, has been born in fulfillment of God's word, and he's eight days old, and in accordance with Jewish law, it's time to be circumcised. That part is not funny. Uh, that part is very painful, right? Uh, but bear with me. Apparently, they haven't named him yet. Uh, so the picture you get is this crowd of people, friends and relatives, neighbors, who are pressuring Elizabeth to name him Zechariah, right? They're pressuring him. And so Elizabeth quite forcefully says, no, he shall be called John. Well, I can just kind of picture him. They... Maybe they pull out their tablet or they go to the computer and they go to Ancestry.com <laughs> and they do a quick family search history and they're like, what gives? I don't see John anywhere in family history. Where is this coming from? I, don't think, I think something's not quite right here, Elizabeth. So they go to Zechariah. And so they, they go to him and apparently Zechariah is not only mute, but he's also deaf. So somehow, somehow they, I don't know, they play charades. Uh, but they, they try and to get this point across to him that what do you want to name uh, your, your son? And somehow he figures out what they're motioning and he asks for his tablet and his stylus. Uh, not quite as techy as this, this tablet and stylus, but he does ask for a, a, a tablet which would have been made out of wood and had a wax covering that he could write on. And he writes, his name is John. And that response fills everyone with awe and wonder, right? If you pick it up in verse 63, it says, He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John, and they all wondered. 
And then, verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loose and he spoke, blessing God. And what fear or awe came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. When we think about God's mercy, it should fill our hearts with awe and wonder. Now I'm going to read a few verses that should really anchor that firmly in your heart. And it's found in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. In Romans chapter 9, verses 14 and 18, Paul writes this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, Romans 9.18, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is also the same text where scripture says that God hates Esau, but loves Jacob. And people get offended by that verse. And they get offended in the wrong way, because they say, how could God hate Esau? You know what, you're missing it if that's what you're wrestling with. The question you should be asking is, how could he ever love Jacob? And how could he ever love me? And how could he ever love you? That's what we should wrestle with. Because he has mercy on whom he has mercy. And he hardens whom he hardens. And so, as, as we think about God's mercy, like that song says, we should fall on our knees. Our hardness of heart should be dissolved by his goodness. And we fall on our knees and say, why did he have mercy on Mary to have the child? There could have been a thousand other girls. Why mercy on Elizabeth? Why mercy on you to save you? Why? It's not because of anything we did. It cannot possibly be that. It's because of his sovereign mercy. And we praise him for that. That should fill us with awe and wonder. And then we can just pile mercy upon mercy upon mercy because we, we have mercy by justification. We have been declared righteous by God. The mercy of redemption. We've been purchased by the blood of God. The mercy of propitiation. That Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God. The mercy of forgiveness. That God forgives us all of our sin. And it doesn't stop there. There's the mercy of the Holy Spirit himself. The love of God reconciled to God, that God's abounding in grace, the mercy of eternal life, of being united with Christ in his death and resurrection, that we're freed from the power and penalty of sin, that we've been made a slave of righteousness. There is now therefore no condemnation. We've been adopted into his family. We've been predestined, called, glorified, that God is merciful towards us in giving us all things, not just some things, but all things. And Jesus is even our great high priest, mercifully interceding for us at God's right hand, and that nothing can separate us from God's love. It's no wonder that Paul says in Romans 9, we are vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy. 
And I hope and pray that's filling your heart with awe and wonder. What a God. And from there it leads to obedience, yes? Obedience. Elizabeth and Zechariah show their faith and trust, their obedience in a couple of ways. One, they have John circumcised on the eighth day. That's in accordance with God's law. Another way that they show obedience, as you know, is they name their son John to the shock and wonder of everybody else. And there's no hesitation this time. Initially, Zechariah hesitates, right? The angel comes to Zechariah, tells him what he wants to do, what God's planning on doing. And Zechariah is like, what now? You know, can I get a few more details? And he's punished, mercifully punished, uh, by having his mouth closed, right? But this time, there's no hesitation when he's asked, what should his name be? There's no hesitation in the obedience. His name is John. He has faith and he obeys and he bursts forth and prays. So what we see from that, I believe, is that mercy should always have this effect on us to cause us to be obedient. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to do what? Offer your bodies up as living sacrifices. Why should we do that? That verse goes on to say, this is your only reasonable act of worship. When we think about God's mercy, our response should be wholehearted obedience, holy and solely, giving ourselves over to Him. That's, that's the only thing that's right. That's the only thing that's holy and pleasing to God. That's the only thing that's true and proper in response to God's mercy. So as your heart is filled with His immeasurable faithful, uh, sovereign mercy. It should compel you to be useful for God's kingdom. It should compel you to love others. Right? It should compel you to be patient with others. It should compel you to forgive others. It should compel you to be welcoming to others. It should compel you to worship Him with every fiber of your being every moment of the day. Because He didn't have to be merciful. That He's met your every need. And by the way, if I can just connect the dot, this is one reason why I love what we're doing with those brainstorming initiatives and reaching out to our community with the love of Christ. Because if God has been merciful to us, what are we supposed to be? Merciful to others. And so loving our community is recognizing that there's needs in our community and we want to extend God's mercy through us. That's what that's about, right? That's what that's about. The fourth response is heartfelt meditation. Heartfelt meditation. The supernatural mercy-laden events that the people have witnessed and heard about make them make a great impression upon them. They can obviously see that, that, that God is at work. They think deeply on it and they ask, what then will this child be? You, you, you catch that in verse 66. All who heard them laid them up in their hearts. Such a common refrain throughout Luke. They laid it up in their hearts. What does that mean? It means they thought on it. They turned it over and over in their minds. And I just want you to think about this too. Don't forget why John was born. John is not born to make much of John. John was born to make much of Jesus. So, this thought came to me as I was thinking about it on, on Thursday. If God's great mercy uh, caused this much awe and wonder 
by way of birth, the birth of John. If, if the birth of John caused people to think long and hard and to praise God uh, for his mercy, how much more? How much more, right? Should the birth and the work and the love of our Savior Jesus Christ cause us to think long and hard on it? Yes? That makes sense? If, if in response to John's birth, the people lay this up in their heart and say, what then would this child be for the hand of the Lord is with him? How much more should us post-cross, you know, looking back on this with the word of God, how much more should we lay these things up in our hearts saying, what kind of savior is this? And that's a big problem today. I don't think we're very given to pausing and thinking about weighty things like this. Busyness, clutter, triviality, entertainment occupy our time and attention. We don't pause and reflect on the character of God. That's a very needed interruption in our lives. We need to spend time thinking hard about God. When's the last time you did that? Thinking hard on God. Meditating on Him. Laying these things up in your heart. Turning them over in your mind over and over and over. So let this verse be a cue to you, a prompt to you to study and meditate deeply on the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And like Spurgeon said, think on that one for a while and then move on to another one. And then move on to another one. And you'll find that your soul will soar. And that brings us right back to where we started. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. That's the most important thing about you. When you think rightly about God, you will think rightly about yourself. <clears throat> True wisdom is found in knowing God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures and then knowing yourself, and those things are very deeply interrelated. So what comes to your mind when you think about the fact that God is merciful? <clears throat> and above all, what I hope comes to your mind when you hear about God's mercy, is that you will say, I run to Jesus. I fly to Jesus. In and of myself, I recognize I'm a miserable sinner, fully deserving of God's wrath, fully deserving of his punishment. I have a great need. I'm a great sinner, a great need. And maybe you feel that need this morning. I pray and I hope that you do, that you feel your sin this morning, that you feel your rebellion against him, that you feel your need for mercy. Do you feel that this morning? And what I hope you will hear and recognize is God is merciful, that God is delighting in mercy. What a great encouragement to throw yourself on God if you feel your need of sin and forgiveness, then go to God who is rich in mercy and he will forgive. There's no greater encouragement than that fact that God delights in mercy. He counts it his glory to forgive your sin, to meet you at your greatest need. I tell you, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in your heart. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. Are you weak?
Are you burdened? Are you troubled? Jesus did not come to save the healthy or to call the righteous, but Jesus came to save the sick, to save the sinners. Do you feel your need this morning? Do you recognize your sin this morning? Oh, cast yourself on Jesus. He's mighty to save. Perhaps you think, I've done too much sin, too, too great of sin. That's nonsense. Remember what we talked about. His mercy is without limit. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy. God is richer in mercy than you are in debt to your sin. I'm going to say that again. God is richer in mercy than you are in debt to your sin. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. And I can also think of no greater picture of mercy than the Lord's Supper. Remember, today is Communion Sunday. As we think of communion, as we ponder God's mercy, I just want to make a connection with that in your mind. The Lord's Supper, even, even when we do it this way, it's not the way we're familiar with, right? Uh, but even when, when we do it this way, what we remember is, is the wafer that's on the top, underneath that little piece of film there, that that represents the body of Christ, uh, which was willingly sacrificed on the cross for our what? Our sin. Our need. We're needy people. We need salvation. And then we drink the juice. And the juice is a picture of the shed blood of Jesus Christ as poured out for the forgiveness. That. And what I want to say to you, Christian, is this. We're all unworthy. That's, that's Then there's mercy. And come to the cup and the bread. Yes? This is a reminder to you that you are unworthy, but He is worthy. This is a reminder to you that He is rich in mercy. And I, I just share that because I know in years past or experience of, of many Christians who, who don't partake in this because that week they sinned or something or they, they feel guilty and they, they feel unworthy. And, and I'm trying to help you see that as long as you've confessed that to Him and sought Him out about that, then this is for you. Partake in this and be reminded that he is rich in mercy to you. That you are needy and he loves, he delights to meet that need. Does that make sense? It's a very, very important reminder. But I will say too, very, very, very quickly, that if you are right now professing faith in Christ, but you are delighting in sin, and you have unconfessed sin in your hearts, you're unrepentant, then with Scripture I strongly warn you, do not drink this. Do not eat this. Because if you have unrepented sin in your heart, if you have hardness of heart, uh, and you're delighting in sin, if you drink this, you are spurning the mercy of God. You do not want to spurn the mercy of God. Because if you spurn the mercy of God, and you drink this with a hard heart, unconfessed sin, then you are drinking God's judgment on yourself. The Lord's Supper is a serious thing, is it not? A serious thing. So what we're going to do is, we're going to give a few moments, 
Hopefully everyone has one of these. If you don't, now's the time to go grab one super quick back there in the foyer. But what we're going to do is we're going to give a few moments of, of silence. And maybe what you need to do is to do some sin searching, some soul searching. And there's some sin in your heart the Lord's convicting you about, and you need to confess that to Him. You need to get right with Him. Maybe you know in your heart of hearts that you, you don't have His salvation at all. Then now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Maybe in your heart, your heart's just bursting with praise and thanksgiving at His mercy. Then spend a few minutes now praising Him and thanking Him and rejoicing in Him. And then in a minute or two, I'll stand up and I'll, I'll lead us through this. Okay? So a few moments just to bow your head and go before God in prayer to either confess or to praise Him. Without Christ, all things are impossible. So how we rejoice in your mercy. You've seen our need, and you've acted. You've met that need so perfectly, and our cup overflows in so many ways. You've graciously given us all things through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, how we praise you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that there is more mercy in you than sin in our hearts. That your mercy is more, more than the, the, the deepest, darkest, most heinous, abominable sin we can imagine. Though your mercy is more. And Lord, we read the stubbornness of heart, the hardness of heart. They're not crying out to you for mercy. They're still trying to do it in their own strength. They're still trying to live life. That you would show them uh, how great you are that you and you alone are worthy of worship, and that you are, are worthy of a wholehearted uh, response, of wholehearted sacrifice, of being living sacrifices. And Lord, we just can't praise you enough for all this, and we thank you so much for all of this. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we uh, do the communion, <clears throat> what we're going to do is, I'm going to read the verses. And then just go ahead and eat the wafer and, and drink the juice. And then once you're able to, to swallow that down, Josiah and the worship team are going to lead us once more in that song, His, His Mercy is More. So the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.